0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's Autism Science Foundation Weekly Science Podcast. As promised, this week we'll be focusing on two new genetic studies and why you should care about them. And because my understanding of some of these complex genetic analyses are rusty to say the least, we're going to get right down to the meeting pretty quickly. For everyone's sake, I'll tone down the details or at least I'll try. And if you're a researcher that is, say, more polished about genetic analyses and I got something flat out wrong, come at me and send me an email or put a note on the podcast website. I do not mind being schooled about how I got things wrong. So part of the heritability of autism is genetic. And while some of the genetics is inherited, meaning you can see it in a parent or family member... Some are what are called de novo, which means it just seems to appear out of nowhere. The mutation isn't in one of the parents and poof, it ends up in the child. There's always been somewhat of a tension between how much of autism is de novo genetics or rare, meaning there's a known genetic mutation associated with ASD, Or what is common mutation? Meaning there isn't one mutation, but there are likely hundreds of common mutations in a genetic pathway associated with ASD. They require different types of genetic analyses, but a lot of studies so far have classified them as one or the other, de novo rare or common variation. But really do you have to put in one type of mutation in a corner and isolate it from the other, or are they all kind of mixed together? And also, is autism so unique from other neurodevelopmental disorders that they have only genes that are seen only in autism and no other psychiatric issues? I want to mention that was the theory 20 years ago when genetic studies in ASD started, but does that still hold? Is there any crossover between genes in ASD and for other psychiatric disorders? And importantly, if there are, are there some risk for some genetic disorders and some protective for other disorders, which points to a specific outcome? Do these sound to you like amazing questions? I think they are, and I'm fascinated by them. So I'm going to keep on going from here. Two research studies came out this week that answer or answer to the best of their ability of the science so far, the questions I just mentioned. The first paper, in part supported by the Autism Science Foundation as part of the Autism Sisters Project, carefully categorizes the genes, who is affected by them more, and how are they involved in neurodevelopment? When I say, quote unquote, where do they come from, this is a hot topic. Are the mutations that show up seen in either parent? Are they considered de novo? And are others that are seen in some form a biological parent and considered inherited? Also, there are rare variants which have big effects. So what is the role of the common variant, which has smaller effects? But of course, in common variants, you need to study multiple of of them at a time. And there are different autism genes to cause that diagnosis. There may be some overlap between rare genetic variants and common variants that scientists don't even know about yet, which will help figure out not just where autism comes from, but how it shows up in different people and why and how to build better interventions. Now, I'm going to go some of the Q&A as I would in my head with each question trying to kind of put into perspective, why is this important? So where do these mutations come from? Are they inherited or are they de novo? This is a really important question, especially for parents who still consistently have this nagging guilt that they caused their child's autism through their quote unquote bad genes, which is silly, but the more research we can do to dispel this, the better. So it does turn out that there are both inherited and de novo mutations associated with ASD. But people with ASD have a higher enrichment of de novo mutations compared to those inherited mutations. It doesn't mean that there are more and less than one type or another per se, but it does mean people with ASD are more likely to have de novo mutations than inherited mutations. Two, what's the role of common variation versus de novo mutation? Even though this is the biggest genetic study with the most number of autism families so far this still isn't enough to pinpoint all the specific common variation involved in ASD. There were 11,000 people with autism in this study, so how much more families do we need? I don't know, but studies like SPARC are getting us there. Scientists know that common variation is there, and there actually is a gene called KMT2E that's seen in both common variation signals and de novo rare variation studies. But there were still not enough of those people to narrow down distinct common variant genes. However, a new class of genes was discovered. They are called driver genes. These genes are within a large copy number variation. These are big chunks of the genome that are missing chromosomal areas of interest. But what genes involved in that area of the chromosome are in fact targets it turns out they can identify what are the driver genes in specific areas of huge chromosomal deletions. And that can further push a better autism diagnosis. And these driver genes can actually help drive new intervention strategies. Number three, so how many mutations are there and what are they? The number after this study is at 102. There's a figure actually in the podcast summary with the ones with the strongest effect and those with lesser effects, but still met statistical significance, meaning they were involved just not as often. This was included in the graphical abstract of the paper to give everybody kind of a better sense from figures and illustrations what the study found. A scientifically savvy person will know the names of the strongest candidate genes, CHD8, SCN2A, shank, syngap, FOXP1, among others. The next question is, is there a sex difference, and what does that mean? Again, this largest study so far showed that females have twice as many de novo mutations in those 102 autism genes compared to males. And females with these mutations didn't even have more severe traits compared to males. Some people have said that females with more severe traits actually have the higher genetic mutation load. That is not the case. More de novo mutations still led to the same symptom severity. Now this is the most definitive evidence so far of the female protective effect, which ASF is following up on more. This does not mean that females do not have autism, but it may explain why the features of ASD are different than males. The female protective effect has also been seen in some many new neuroimaging studies, which show completely different activation patterns in males versus females with autism compared to what you would expect in typically developing males versus females. The next question is, Are they specific for ASD or common for neurodevelopmental delay? And if so, which neurodevelopmental problems? Remember that I said earlier, the hunt was for one autism gene that was seen only in autism and not anxiety or other developmental disorders or other psychiatric issues. Well, I guess the cat's out of the bag because that's not how the genetics of ASD work. Common variation plus de novo variation plus interaction of genes in the environment are all important contributors. Scientists are trying to figure out a way to separate out the influence of different types of genes on autism outcome. A study years ago led by Elise Robinson's group suggested that the common variation was more associated with ASD in people with higher IQ or the proxy educational attainment. And this balance between common variation and rare variation could be driving the differences across the spectrum. Now, this larger study looked at different types of variation, both common and rare, and found that people with de novo rare genetic mutations had a later age at walking and a generally lower IQ than those with predominantly common variation. In fact, they could partition the genes out to those specific to ASD and those part of an overall neurodevelopmental delay. Of course, they stipulate clearly, if that's not already implied, that not everyone fits into one class or the other. This is what the data say in general, but it doesn't mean that everyone with a high IQ and more typical neurodevelopment only have common variation. In fact, those with high IQ and normal age at walking still carry a higher than expected burden of de novo variants, but there you are. That generalization may help clinical care, but it's not gonna define it on an individual level. The next one is, when are these genes expressed during development and what are their functions? Okay, geek out with me a little bit right here. Using actual cells from the human brain, and thank you brain tissue research, by the way, the scientists were able to determine the function of these 102 genes, or at least most of them. They mostly fell into two categories. One was gene expression regulators, which are the most impacted, as you would expect, prenatally or earlier, because they affect the expression of genes, proteins, and development, how those cells form, what type of cells are they, how they're shaped, how they connect. And then the second group was neural communication genes. These are more involved in development of the connections, the maintenance of communication across short and long distances. They're expressed even in postnatal life, since as you know, neural communication is sustained throughout your life. Your brain cells talk to each other until you die. They may also seem to primarily affect the balance of excitation and inhibition in the developing brain. These are two basic functions in the brain, but are different during development. So before birth, some cells may turn on other neurons, but after birth, their function switches so that they turn them off. It's the balance of turning on and turning off that may control things like sensory load and overload, motor issues, ability to sort social cues, development of language, and areas controlling thinking. Another study takes aim at the idea of how unique are these genes to autism. It takes it to an even higher level. Instead of focusing on autism families, they basically pull data across 232,000 cases of people with various psychiatric disorders and almost 500,000 people without from genome-wide studies of things like anorexia, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, autism spectrum disorder, bipolar, unipolar major depression, obsessive-compulsive disorder, schizophrenia and Tourette syndrome. So again, not everyone had autism spectrum disorder, but a lot of them did, and a lot of them had other disorders primarily. Why did they do this? To determine if there's any interrelatedness across the disorders on a genetic level. In fact, my year-end podcast last year hinted to this on a smaller level, looking at the brain tissue of people with autism. And of course, also there's been some speculation about a particular gene that is involved in both ADHD and ASD. But you need to try to get to at least a million samples to really ask the question of whether or not diagnosis of one is associated with another in because of similar genetic mutations. This is an autism podcast, so I don't really want to detail the associations across all the different disorders. I will tell you this. There were strong correlations between ADHD and ASD, which are both childhood onset, so it's not necessarily surprising. There was also a link between the two genetically to major depression, which hasn't been seen before. So that's surprising. I mean, there are high rates of depression in people with ASD, so it may not be surprising, but the link hasn't been seen before. They also revealed significant pleiotropy, which means the same gene can have different functions leading to different disorders. There were 23 genes that were affected in four or more disorders, There's one gene, something called DCC, which is associated with eight disorders. This means it's pleiotropic, that in some psychiatric issues, it causes changes in this pathway, but in other psychiatric issues, it may cause changes in this protein leading to changes in this other pathway. Now, here's where things get interesting, and I know you were waiting for it, so here it is. They identified a specific set of genetic loci, like like tiny little single variant mutations that had opposite effects on the risk of psychiatric disorders. So these included loci with opposing effects on pairs of disorders that were genetically correlated and have common clinical features. For example, a single nucleotide polymorphism within one gene was associated with opposing effects on autism spectrum disorders, and schizophrenia, being a risk gene for ASD, but protective for schizophrenia. There are other specific loci that are protective for ASD, but also risk for schizophrenia. Now, this is the sort of analysis that should be possible for looking at the female protective effect once we have closer to that 1 million samples, but we're just starting to understand how it shows up. It's tricky to figure out what to do, though, with a gene that increases risk for one psychiatric illness while decreasing risk for ASD. I mean, I'm not sure I would want to have a gene manipulated that may increase my risk for psychosis, even if it decreases the risk for ASD. However, when you look at female protective effects between males and ASD females, that could be a little bit more clear cut in terms of a direct line to therapeutics. What this means, and maybe I should have labeled the podcast this, is it's complicated. Different types of genes have different functions leading to different outcomes. They emerge at different times in development, which may affect outcome. It's honestly a miracle, actually, if you think about it, that there aren't more mental health issues in people in general thinking about everything that can and does go wrong during development. So why are these studies important? Even if you think genetics research is stupid and irrelevant, number one, it's not just about what gene, it's about what genes and what's disorders and what disorders. We're all kind of part of the same family. At least some disorders are. That's important to know when you think about ASD. Second, this could target different intervention based on what type of cells and what stage in development. Things that are developed for prenatal protection, so to speak, may not confer resilience against postnatal development changes. So we have to be careful. And finally, three, understanding. Do you ever wonder why features of ASD are different than someone else's? Why people with autism in general are different? It's partially based on genetics. And I'm not a 100% everything genetics kind of thinker, but the genetics is way more complex than we thought. So think about the heritability and things that are passed on, including the environment in genetics. We are really just starting to scratch the surface. Thank you so much to all the researchers who made this both sets of research possible this week, and I will talk to you next week.